Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, and we've got a great show today. We're talking to Andrew McCreeth. He is the Chief Executive Officer, CIO, Forge First Asset Management. We're talking about a whole bunch of issues, including a potential recession. You want to join us for this one? You know, Faisal, uh, we, we talk about this often, and it's also a dream of yours and mine, right? To, to be able to live internationally, not just travel, not just go on a vacation, but to live internationally. The question is, in retirement, can you combine your skill sets with this idea of freelancing and this notion of living abroad or, you know, having, experiencing that dream that you're in? You know, when you look at our parents' retirement, Dave, it was work for mm-hmm. 30 years, and then when you retire, you stay at home, rocking chair, yep. front porch, don't do, don't do much. Right. Um, it's changed. It's called a new retirement. And so really, what is that new retirement? How does it work? How do you make that become yeah. a reality? Yeah. We better bring the, the guests <laughs> on our show because not only is he wearing an avocado shirt, he's living the dream, <laughs> right? Like he's living the dream. I love the shirt. Winton Churchill, author, International Living. Winton, thank you for joining us today. Great. Thanks. Uh, good to be here. I love the shirt. Too bad that people on radio and podcast can't, <clears throat> can't see it, but uh, it's a fantastic shirt. It makes me want to get out of this winter area in Calgary, <laughs> get on the West Jet and fly out to Mexico. <laughs> so walk us through. What is the new retirement? Okay. The new retirement is taking skills that you already have, considerable skills that baby boomers and people 50 plus and the people that you help with their portfolios and their investments and their assets and and and. You know, part of it is putting all that together and and stabilizing your life and then taking these skills into online marketplaces. And two years ago, most people had no idea what I was talking about in terms of online freelancing, working for home. And the last two years, we've had quite the lesson on that. I mean, there's hardly a person that didn't work for home in the last two years. And the, the important thing that I've found in the 14 years that I've been helping other people do this sort of thing is you, you want to pay attention to the skills you have because they are in demand. There are freelance buyers looking for people, 50-plus baby boomers, who uh, this is not their first rodeo. They, they get the big picture. They know how to show up on time. They've had decades of experiences uh, honing those skills. And the, the traditional view of sort of the, the nomad uh, uh, digital warrior is, is one who's jumping up on zip lines with their shirt off and all that kind of stuff. That's not us. But we got skills. We, we, we have, you know, as uh, I like to say, I've got shoes older than uh, people that are freelancers now. And uh, so uh, the, the thing we want to do is jump right in, get the ball rolling, and, and take all those well-honed skills, figure out which ones are online because making buggy whips are, are not uh, you know financially lucrative anymore. But there are things like doing PowerPoint presentations, doing proofreading, lots of school teachers very easily do a few hours of proofreading a week and put an extra few hundred dollars into their, uh, their bank account. And as you know, when somebody hits retirement age, 
having the ability to bring in uh, assets uh, is great, you know, to, to push off that time they have to tap their retirement uh, assets is really important. And uh, just the comfort that that provides, uh, also keeping your brain engaged is a very important thing. I've, I've, I've seen this in my own life that, uh, you know, people that have a plan and are kind of engaged in something, and it doesn't have to be freelancing, but freelancing is a good thing to keep your brain engaged and has the added advantage of providing some money. So that's what we encourage people to do and have been doing that for, for uh, over 14 years now. Wynton, we've talked to a lot of our clients when they're transitioning to retirement. One of the things they talk about is maybe this, this phased approach and part of it might be going to less of a full-time, maybe part-time and, and looking at opportunities to still supplement their cash flow, like you were saying. Let's give some of our viewers and listeners some ideas of what their skill sets can be used because most people think oh, when I'm done, I'm done, or right. I'm done and then I can go to become a consultant, which still requires a lot more hours than what you're describing. So we talked about a school teacher doing proofreading. Let's think of some other industries uh, and, and professions that they can transfer their skill set into this, what we call now the gig economy. Right. A lot of people uh, in what we used to call white collar sort of work would be the ones that would know how to use PowerPoint, for example. And helping people put together PowerPoint presentations is a big thing. And it's funny, most of us lived in it that are my age. You know, I lived in PowerPoint for the last 25 years, 30 years. And But uh, the younger group of freelancers doesn't really understand PowerPoint. So that would be an example Another example is customer service, and most people react to customer service like, well, I don't want to sit on a phone all day and answer phone calls. It is not that anymore. It's engineers who answer basically emails or customer service tickets about complex uh, technical problems, for example, that kind of thing. So the more uh, you can bring what we call a domain of knowledge, like if you're an engineer, that's a domain of knowledge. If you're a, uh, in a certain industry, like say the pharmaceutical industry, that's a domain of knowledge. And then if you have a skill set over here, that's like PowerPoint or the ability to explain things to people. I mean, we've all had that experience of trying to get a hold of support and just not getting uh, a very satisfactory results. But what we do is look to line up all those things so they intersect. And that's where somebody can maximize their earning, be most productive, and most satisfied. And most of the people we work with are looking to make uh, to work uh, 20 to 30% of the time. It's that person that, that is easing out of something they're doing already. They're moving into something that's, uh, uh, you know, the, the new retirement and they want to make that transition. So what we encourage people to do is to start now, uh, figure this stuff out, learn about these job and project networks, which is essential because the number one challenge with being a freelancer is where do my clients come from? And on these job and project networks, there's over 500,000 individual assignments available every day from give me some advice on how to develop a curriculum, which teachers are great at, to proofread this document, to make this PowerPoint, to I want to talk to a financial manager about 
what I'm doing. And all of that is out there, uh, available, and it's a single place where you log in. So you're not, you know, going to Chamber of Commerce meetings with sweaty palms and new business cards trying to convince somebody to do something with you. You're going in and, and you're looking at somebody says, this is the job I need done. Tell me what your qualifications are and tell me what price you'll do it for. And the when you come up with a price, some people say, well, I used to make 50 bucks an hour when I was working. Well, that's that's cool. But now, you know, if you could make 30 bucks an hour and sit at your dining room table and do it on your schedule, would that be worth it? You know, you don't have to have the second car. You don't have to have gas prices, which, you know, we're, we're all seeing a, a bump in that. And, uh, uh, and it's a hedge against inflation, because when you do these jobs on these networks, you're doing them sort of at market price today. And if you've been working for a company, you get an annu- annual review, and they say, you know, the company's having a really tough time, which a lot of them have, and we can't afford a raise. But if you're doing this kind of work, you can get a raise, because you're bidding on new jobs at the market price today rather than what somebody thought they should hire you at a year ago. So uh, in a nutshell, we do uh, two-day seminars on this stuff, but that's the nutshell version. Winton, thank you very much. I think you've raised some awareness here. We're quickly running out of time. Uh, we may have to follow up on this because I think there's going uh, to be some significant interest on that. I want, to ta- I want to thank you for taking some time out of your day just to, just, just to share some information about this and raise the awareness that people do have skill sets that are transferable and you can, you can work anywhere in the world. We have a reoccurring guest, a member of the, uh, the Forge First Asset Management Team, in fact, the CEO, CIO, Andrew McCreeth is joining us today. Andrew, we've had you on the show many times. Last time we brought you on here was in the fall of last year, uh, kind of giving us a Q4 review. And, uh, you know, with, with what's happening in the markets, with what's happening in the, uh, in the geopolitical scene, let's start off with what's going on in uh, uh, year to date. From January till, till the end of the first quarter, what have you seen happen? And then let's kind of take it to the next step is what are some of the ongoing concerns? Okay, well, welcome to, it's great to be here, Faisal. Uh, thanks for having me on your show once again. Uh, I think to answer your question, I'd like to start my response by taking listeners back to our last conversation, when at that time, uh, during 2021, I expressed the opinion that policy accommodation, uh, be it fiscal stimulus, or more importantly, the printing of money by central banks, had peaked last Labor Day, and such that we were going to see rising interest rates and a reduction in the liquidity that central banks provide into the marketplace. And as a result of that reduction of stimulus, specifically on the monetary policy side, uh, it was going to become increasingly difficult for the pricing of all financial assets, be it bonds, stocks, or ultimately real estate, were going to become increasingly challenged. The rate at which they become challenged was going to be a function of a couple of variables. Specifically, how bad was inflation going to get? Uh, Was it going to force the central banks to hike interest rates faster and more aggressively? 
clearly uh, the the quicker they reduce reduce the amount of liquidity in the system, in other words, the amount of money sloshing around, combined with how fast they increase interest rates, uh, is very germane to the argument about the outlook for financial assets. What has happened since our last conversation is, of course. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, led by Jerome Powell, has, you know, ripped up the word uh, transient when he talks about inflation. They now admit there's a big, big problem. And as a result, uh, they're, they're poised to increase interest rates at a far faster pace than anyone envisioned several months ago. That's not good for stocks. And that's been the driving force for I would say January into mid-February. When we got into late February, obviously we had that invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, and that variable has had uh, a multitude of impacts when it comes to the pricing of financial assets. Obviously, from a, the perspective of humanity, it's a, it was a travesty and remains a travesty. And I don't want to belittle the pain, the suffering um, that families in Canada and, you know, who have members in the Ukraine uh, are enduring. But we're here to talk about financial markets right now. And so when one looks at financial markets, uh, the war has had a couple of effects. You know, obviously has had a materially positive impact on commodity prices, whether it's agriculture or energy. Um, and it also has significantly aggravated the ongoing supply chain problems, which of course uh, makes it challenging for food manufacturers uh, or industrial manufacturers who have been sourcing parts from regions of the world over there that they just can't actually get the parts for anymore. So as we look forward here, um, the, the pace of rate hikes and the forced reduction of the amount of liquidity floating around the system um, continues to be incredibly relevant to the outlook for financial markets, but it now has this second variable, the war, uh, which when you put the two together, in my opinion, Faisal, it makes it pretty tough for financial markets, specifically stocks, to have a positive outcome over the next 15, 18 months. And we have not been at a juncture like this for many years where investors have to have active advice and management. Buying an ETF is, is in my opinion, going to be uh, a ticket to lose money. Uh, and so active advice is of paramount importance at this juncture. Just want to confirm one thing, Andrew. Are you saying next 12 to 18 months negative performance on the major indexes? Let's call S&P 500 TSX. To use one word, yes. So when you're looking at your portfolio, now we've, we've been working together for years. You've got, a, you've got two mandates. One is more conservative than the other that we've we've talked about in the past when it comes the beauty that you have is the ability to go long and short um, when you're looking at that kind of a mindset of potentially a negative performance in the basic indexes of s p 500 tsx how the heck do you make money or protect yourself during that time using the tools that you have in front of you well 
it's a good question. And I, I guess I'd, I'd like to initiate my response by saying that I believe it's going to be a very difficult period of time for investors to make money by owning bonds or owning stocks. In other words, you and I would call it being long only, where you know you have $100 and you go out and buy $100 of bonds or $100 of stocks, and you're not short anything or you're not hedged in any way. And we'll talk about shorting and hedging. Um, the reason I believe that is because of the impact of those two variables that you know I mentioned to you in my long answer to your involved first question. A uh, simple fact of the matter is rising interest rates means the price of bonds go down. And then when one looks at stocks, uh, clearly rising interest rates negatively impact the valuation of a company's profits as it relates to its stock price in the marketplace. And you know what? It's always possible that we have a recession too. And that's not going to be good for stocks either. Why? Because if we have a recession, the profit forecasts for companies will be reduced. Uh, and, you know, falling earnings typically isn't correlated with rising stock prices. Okay, so how do we do it? Well, we're not long only. Um, what Forge First does is we go long and short publicly traded companies in North America. Um, we are focused on free cash flow. So we buy companies like Termaline and CNQ or Microsoft and Google, names like that. We've, we're buy and hold investors. Uh, and these companies generate gobs and gobs of free cash flow. When one looks at the return of a security, um, it is, it's, it's constituted by the alpha plus the beta. In other words, when, when oil prices go up, um, the share price of C&Q, Canadian Natural Resources, is likely to go up. When oil prices go down, uh, the price of C&Q is likely to go down. That is what's called beta, the movement in the price of the security that's correlated to the movement in the market or the movement in the commodity price that drives that company. Whereas alpha is the movement in the share price that is attributable to company specific factors, companies changing for the better, changing for worse. So our job is to identify companies that we think are going to generate gobs of free cash and we buy those or we go long those. And then we short companies that we think either are going to have deteriorating fundamentals, alpha, or we may short some uh, lousy oil companies or tech stocks where we think that that will enable us to hedge out the market risk or the beta from what we own on the long side. Our funds, which limit our small cap stock exposure um, to no more than 10%, and we've defined a small cap company as a billion dollars in market capitalization, so those are still pretty big companies. Uh, only 4% of our book is in small caps. We don't buy private companies at all. Um, and as I said, we're buy and hold investors. So we, we, we complement our book with a lot of what are referred to as listed put options to further hedge market risk. So we have quite a bit of protection on our books to complement what we own in the long side of our portfolio. So uh, a quarter to date, um, you know, last late last week, we ended the first quarter 
our long short alternative fund was up about 5.1% net of all fees. Uh, you know, US markets were down, the Canadian market was up about 3%. Our long short fund was up about 5.1% net, but arguably just as important, Faisal, the fund didn't do this. The fund just did this, steady eddy. Why? Because how we construct our solutions uh, for your clients is we hedge out the noise, we hedge out the market risk, we hedge out the beta and make money from our alpha selections. Um, we've been talking a lot on and off the air together, Andrew, about this, uh, the R word that's coming out um, is the word recession. And let me paint the picture for you, Andrew. Throughout all of this week, we've been hearing the flattening of the yield curve, an inverted yield curve. And generally speaking, what we hear about is when the two-year U.S. government treasury is higher interest than the 10-year. That's an inverted yield curve is what we've been hearing about. Uh, media has been splashing it. Social media has been talking about this R word. We're going to a recession. That's it. It's over. When we look at this, what are your thoughts first with that? Are we headed towards a recession? And what are your thoughts about this whole inverted yield curve uh, thesis that's out there? Great question, Faisal. And uh, I would start by saying that history rhymes, but it doesn't repeat. What do I mean? Well, in the past, an inverted yield curve has been a very good predictor of a recession. However, this go around, um, the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States and even here at the Bank of Canada, our central bank has delivered a significant degree of intervention uh, in the bond market so as to cause the yield offered by bonds, hence the price of bonds, to not be running by nature by itself. And they've effectively been fixing the pricing. So it's difficult to extrapolate history into what's going to happen today by itself that an inverted yield curve means that we are going to have a recession. Sorry, Andrew, let me just jump in there. Um, are we saying that because there's so much interference um, or, or usage by central banks that we cannot really identify this inverted yield curve equals recession like we have in the past when the central banks haven't been as involved in, uh, in buying the bonds and, and somewhat manipulating the prices? A hundred percent. It's not black and white that we will have a recession uh, because uh, the, that indicator, the inverted yield curve, has in the past indicated that we are going to have a recession. The intervention by central banks has muddied the water, shall we say. Um, something else that's very different from past recessions is you know, look at the look at the employment market in the United States. You know, Friday morning we had U.S. jobs data, and you know, not only was the wage data good, not only were the number of new jobs added good, especially when you look at the revisions of previous months. Um, the unemployment rate fell um, to a very very low level, three point five percent. And so the job market is very strong. We historically have not had such strong job markets moving into a recession. Why? Well, because think about it. The consumer is about 69% of the U.S. economy. And if the, if the jobs market is really tight, then people have jobs, they have money to spend, and we're not going to go into a recession. 
At the same point in time, um, when one looks at the industrial side of the U.S. economy, also Friday morning, you had ISM manufacturing. The data was lousy. Why is why was the data lousy? Well, there's a few reasons. First off, um, on the manufacturing side, um, consumers in North America have been spending money for the last two years on durable goods. You know, there's only so many TVs and cars and stuff like that that you can buy. I'd say the durable goods market is beginning to run out of steam. Secondly, supply chain. Um, you know, we had we continued to have supply chain problems three months ago. Uh, I know that in the monthly commentaries that I write once a month and are posted on our website, forgefirst.com, that I opined a couple of months ago that the supply chain problems are going to take us right into 23. They're not getting solved during 22. I, I still stick with that, but now I'll sort of, shall we say, I stick with it cubed, if you will, because of the war. Um, you know, the war is aggravating supply chains. Um, the third item has to do with commodity prices. Um, obviously, commodity prices are high and they're going to stay high. Um, but it's only in the 1970s did we last see rising commodity prices that were driven by the supply side versus the demand side. What I mean is that prices are not high because demand is so high. Prices are high because there's no supply. And, you know, we're reading more and more about how, you know what, President Biden wants oil companies to drill more oil in the United States. But the simple fact of the matter is the oil companies don't have the workers. Or if you want to frack a well, there's not the sand availability. Why? Because the sand companies went bankrupt over the last couple of years. So um, monetary policy, changing interest rates or printing more money can change the demand side of economy, but it can't help the supply side of the economy. So if I put those three variables together, as we move forward here, there is definitely a risk that we move into a recession. Why? Because the consumer is running out of gas, shall we say, uh, no pun intended. Uh, you know, the savings rate is back to pre-COVID levels. Of course, inflation is far higher than wage increases. And so in the back half of this year, while they've got a job and so they can pay their mortgage, they're running out of juice. And given that they're the big driver of the U.S. economy, um, if they run out of juice, we could fall into a recession. And then, with you know, being a little more brief with this second variable, real uh, recession, the industrial side is definitely weakening. And here at Forge First, our analysis causes us to believe we're going to continue to see a fairly rapid reduction um, on the industrial side of the economy, which again could, shall we say, increase the risk of a recession. But you could argue, Faisal, that a recession is the best thing for financial markets because the Fed may pivot and stop raising interest rates. If you were to give a probability that we are heading into a recession over the next 12 months, I've seen some reports out there calling it between 25 and 33% probability of it happening. Where do you sit on, on, on the probability of a recession in the next 12 months? 40%. 40%. And so given that, that you see a 40% probability of a recession, 
what what are the areas of opportunity in the let's talk about the stock market right now where do you see the areas of opportunity with that and where do you see the uh the biggest hits you talked about industrial uh and, and industrial goods that would probably be a decline or a a, re, a reduction in earnings per share on that area but are there are there places that you say this is no matter what these places are going to look good overall um good question we believe there is a little more upside in resource stocks but we are now late enough in that trade where you can't buy them and go away for a few months. Um, because of course, if we are moving into a recession, notwithstanding my supply versus demand driven argument for pricing, um, especially if you, if you throw in, excuse me, a resolution uh, of, of the war, commodity stocks could get smoked. But for now, we believe there's a little more juice in the trade, if you will. Uh, secondly, we believe that high quality growth stocks, we're talking the Microsofts and Googles of this world, remain attractive because they are not egregiously valued um, and they are arguably recession resistant. Uh, and consequently, we continue to own those stocks. However, I would add uh, that given our outlook for markets, we continue to use put options to protect those positions because for us, our job is to deliver a competitive net return and to try and protect capital when markets get rougher. And this is why we get along so well, Andrew. <laughs> Sorry, this is why we get along so well is because we, we look at profit and protect. We've got about 20 seconds left before we have to get going. Give us your final thoughts. So the final thought is the following. If I say there's a 40% chance of a recession, I'd say there's also a 40% chance of inflation getting out of control, meaning that the central bank would be really behind the curve and they would have to accelerate the rate of reduction of liquidity and even and increase interest rates even faster. And that is the nastiest scenario of all. And long only investors in bonds or stocks would be vulnerable to a very, very nasty outcome. And that's why I said, Faisal, that perhaps the recession is the best realistic scenario for investors. Well, there you go. We've been joined by Andrew McCreeth, CEO, CIO, Forge First Asset Management. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Been a pleasure, Faisal. Thank you. Faisal, we've got a whole mix of things going on right now. Um, and markets start out down this year. Okay, we see downward pressure on markets because of interest rate increases and inflation problems. Then we throw into the mix this whole Russia-Ukraine issue and the uncertainty around what this war is going to look like or grow into, and people are scared. Mm -hmm. What the heck do you do? So I've got a note here on my paper. I think I put it on yours as well. <laughs> let's talk about this, but let's do it without being overly technical in our language. Mm. Okay? Okay. So let's keep it simple. Okay. Okay. When we started out uh, this year, this calendar year, there was a couple of things in front of us that we were concerned about. Valuations of companies, what's the, what's the true value of them, R interest rates going up, inflation, yep. those are the big ones. So, so we start looking at the market and say, okay, where's the opportunities to make money, but where do we have to protect ourselves? Mm -hmm. So the concept of having a lot of your money in the stock market with high volatility, that's a problem. And many of the uh, portfolio managers out there, investment advisors out there, still had the view that markets are gonna be great. So that's problem number one. 
The problem number two that came into play was this whole issue, Russia and Ukraine. Now, throughout the last, call it, eight weeks, what we have done is looked at the economic indicators and the non-conventional data that tells us where things are going. When I say non-conventional data, we look at stuff like online, what are Google searches and so forth that are happening. When I look at conventional data, we're looking at the economic numbers, we're looking at employment numbers, inflation numbers, and when we put them all together, the movements that we've made, we've made so much movement in the last eight weeks that the average advisor or the average money manager has done nothing but sit back and watch this thing fall. And I've seen the markets fall 10, 15, 20%, depending on which market you're referring to. And you're wondering, well, what the heck's going on here? Right. Well, we didn't take that approach to just sit in the market. We didn't take the approach to just hang in there and cross our fingers and hope it works out. We've been very active in our approach, moving literally percentages of money back and forth and moving it around um, between different sectors of the economy based on the data that we're receiving. Mm-hmm. What I find happening right now is people are reacting, and this is in our industry, forget about the investor, people in our industry are reacting to the news and then saying, this is our long-term view. We're just gonna buy ABC company and we're gonna ride it out forever with no exit strategy what's in place. So the number one thing I think that where we have an advantage is we have exit strategies. I think if it is an investor, if you're doing it yourself or if you're dealing with a money manager, ask them what the exit strategy is. In times like this with high volatility, you need to know what your exit strategy is. And I had a recent conversation with an individual who got upset that we took some profit. Yep. Why are you selling out of energy stock? Now, I didn't sell all of it. I just trimmed a bit. Right. Faisal, why are you doing this? Uh, I'm taking profit. Why would you take profit? It's going to continue to go up. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Why wouldn't I take profit? Well, that's ridiculous. You're, so you want me to bet more and more money on an investment to continue to go up, and what if it doesn't? What's the, I'm adding more risk by having more of your money in that spot. Yeah. Takes profit. I have yet to meet someone that's gone broke taking profit. It's a structure and discipline issue, right? Thank you. And, and I mean, thank you for going through the, this notion of being active and dynamic, and we talked about that the whole show. You've got to do it. But regardless of whether or not you're facing... Uh, you know, these kinds of issues that are on the table right now, uh, the structure and the discipline that you set up has to be very important, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I stressed it, um, I've stressed throughout the show and at the beginning that you, retirement is a different time of life, yes. right? And I'm going to take people back to the basics. You said we're not talking technical. We're going to talk plain English here. Um, there are some certain risks that pop up when you move into retirement that are very different when you're 30 and 40 years old and you're growing your wealth. Correct. Right. Because you have multiple goals and objectives you're trying to satisfy. We've talked about this forever. Yep. Nothing has changed about that, right? So to structure and discipline in terms of how you've got your portfolio established, uh, the certainty and security of an income bucket okay, versus the volatility of risk assets, things like stocks and so on and so forth, this only accentuates the problem, mm-hmm. right? Anybody that's retired that's suffering through this right now is down whatever, 20% if you're NASDAQ or tech exposed right now, that's not the way you should be investing, typically for somebody who's retired. Why? Well, because you can't recover, right? If somebody takes a big beating on the downside and they need income and you have to sell assets in a down market, 
you create a mathematical problem for yourself that you don't, you can't recover the same way. You talk about this in our in our <clears throat> webinar we give to to people about and try to educate them about the recovery rate. Right. Once you dig a hole, go through your example of when you dig a hole and you're falling, you dig more money out, how hard it is to recover. Right. So, you know, if you fall, let's take 20%. NASDAQ was down 21%. Let's just round it to 20%. 20% okay. drop. Okay. 20% fall. I've got a $100 portfolio and it falls by 20%. Now I've got $80 of market value. And let's say I need some income. Okay? No. No, no. Let's actually pause. I don't even need income yet. The question I would ask our listening audience or viewing audience, depending on how you're, you're seeing this, is what is the recovery rate you need on that 20% fall to get back to where you started? So let me go by a recap. We had $100. It went down to $80. Right. Now I'm at $80. What rate of return do I need to get back to even? $100. Right. I need 25% or, uh, or, or $20 on 80 right. to, to get back to 100. So I lose 20. I need 25 to get back up. Right. It's not linear. It's not linear. It, right. It's a 20 per, I need 20% more recovery than I did on my loss to get back. 25%. Right? Correct. So, so the problem gets compounded, Faisal, and you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. When I need income. Okay, so that's just for somebody who is in growth mode. So okay? let's go through the same example, Dave. You're at $100, it falls 20%, you're down to $80, you take $10 out right. to spend and live your lifestyle because, hey, that's why you're retired. Right. Now you're at $70 to get back to $100. I need $30 of growth on 70 bucks. So over 40% return just to break even. Right. What ends up happening is called a sequence of returns and you start to go against your capital and you may never right. recover if you spend the same amount of money year in, year out. $10 Correct. in our example every year. The problem with that is you will either have to substantially change your lifestyle yes, or B, run out of money. Yeah. yeah Both they're, are terrible. They're, no, they're not, they're, not, they're not good options. And so the recovery <clears throat> rate is very important that you're talking about. And I'm glad that you're addressing this and we're trying to keep it as simple as possible. There's so much technical stuff we can cover on this. But remember, you don't have time on your side like you did when you were 30. Right. A 20% drop when you're 30, you don't need the money in your RRSPs as an example. Let it ride. Right. You've got the ability got to time. take on that. You've got time on your side. And you've got money coming in, in many cases, new savings coming in. Correct. So you're buying at a lower price. You can dollar cost average, right? Right. So when you're 60, 65, 70 years yeah. of age, how do you take these types of drops? Well, you, 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 it's very... Listen, I, I've shared my, uh, my family's personal experiences with this particular problem, and I can, I've seen it firsthand, right, how this can affect a retirement. And you have to adjust your retirement style, uh, sorry, your investment style as you move to this period of retirement. You can't take a growth mentality to uh, a pure growth mentality to retirement. You still need growth in retirement, I'm not saying that. But you've got these other complexities that can materially destroy a retirement, an estate gift. I mean, there's so many implications yeah. here. Can I, can I just touch <clears throat> on that example we just talked about? You're at $100, the markets fall, your portfolio falls 20%, you're down to $80. You take ten dollars out to, yeah. to spend. You're down to seventy dollars just to break even. You gotta you gotta make up over forty percent return. To, yeah. If the markets are growing at let's say seven seven percent a year after that, right? The recovery rate is five six years. Yeah, or maybe yeah, it's between four and six depending on the right? compounding, right? So if you're at that 
Think about what we just said there. You could lose five to six years worth of time because of your portfolio construction. Right. Let that's that the, sink in. Right. That, that's the structure <laughs> that we talk about, right? Structure and discipline are important, particularly at this stage. We don't have the, <clears throat> the ability to take big hits. Right. Because the recovery time is so long that you may not be able to recover. Yeah. And, and Faisal, I want to stress that you know, when we're talking about this stuff, we're talking about sort of income and growth. But there's other things that you can, you're concerned about in retirement, right? And health is an asset class that we talk about all the time. So not, not as you just compound an income, potential income problem if you're structured inappropriately, but what happens if you have um, needs, healthcare needs mm -hmm. as you age, mm -hmm. which I gotta tell you, almost everybody is gonna have, yep. okay? Many of which will require financial uh, assets or, or, or cash or something. You'll be to, paying out of pocket. Right. And then there's an effect further on the legacy bucket. So I, I'm, I know I'm not going to go into all the details of that stuff and, and get technical because we're not trying to do that. But the point is there's so many different objectives that we've got to hit mm -hmm. that its structure becomes important. Let's say you want to go learn about all the objectives. You want to learn about how you have mutually exclusive goals with a limited amount of money that you saved, whatever that amount is, that you have to have yeah. a structure and discipline to bulletproof your retirement we're going to discuss that at our upcoming seminar on April 26, 7 p.m., live in person and online. We're going to be doing this at the Carriage House Inn. You need to register for this. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com. On behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, thanks very much for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We'll see you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.